before. <laughs> yeah, one time when I was going to, to Carson Newman, you know, the little bridge just down the road here, I hit an icy patch there, slid off the side of the road. Kind of a sick feeling when you lose control uh, that way. In this case, didn't really do any damage or, uh, or cause any problems. But <clears throat> I want to share that video, just kind of give us a, a reference point, a, a visual you know, if you've heard me preach more than just a few times, you probably heard me uh, use the phrase, you can fall in the ditch on either side of the road. Well, we're going to do a whole sermon about that today. Uh, the idea is to, uh, the title of the sermon is, stay out of the ditch and stay out of hell. And he said, I thought we are doing a series about joy invincible. That doesn't sound uh, very joyful. I'm just preaching what's uh, in, in, in the text. And... Uh, there's a warning for us in Philippians chapter 3. You know, the last three weeks we've been talking about salvation in its entirety as far as justification, sanctification, glorification. But there's actually two warnings in this passage. And it's two different ways that we can actually end up missing out on salvation. So look at, look at this graphic, if you would, and, and we're going to kind of refer to this throughout the, the entirety of the message. So if you would, if you would take... The road as salvation, and remember, you know, Scripture said that narrow is the way that leads to salvation, broad is the way that leads to destruction. On this passage today, we're going to see that you can fall in the ditch on either side of the road when it comes to salvation. And, and this isn't just a car sliding into the, the, a ditch and having the annoyance and the expense of having some body work done on the, the car. This is literally our eternal souls being at stake. And, and we can fall into the ditch of legalism where we add to Jesus, where we add to the gospel, where we look uh, for salvation or sanctification in the law instead of in Christ alone. Or, here, here's a big word for you, but you're smart, you can handle it, it's really, really not that complicated. Um, it's not as creative as some of the words in Brett's song, but um, antinomianism. Anti simply means against. It has to do with the law. It just means against the law. And, and this takes away from Christ, and it takes away from the gospel because it minimizes his power to transform us. It, it, it says that we can be justified without being sanctified. We can have Jesus as Savior without him being our Lord. That we can go to heaven without being changed on the earth. It is to put it in simple terms. And so, the Bible tells us to test ourselves to make sure that we're in the faith. And I want to ask you to do that today. I mean, if, if, if you're honest, are you on the road of salvation where Jesus is genuinely your Savior and your Lord, you're trusting Him and Him alone, or could you be in the ditch of legalism because you're looking to things other than Christ or in addition to Christ to make you right with God? Or would you say that you're going to heaven, but your life has never been changed? Would you say that Jesus is your Savior, but if you're honest, have you ever really submitted to Him as Lord? And the thing that I want you to think about today is if, if there's any chance that heaven and hell are real, what could be more important than making sure of this? Now, you know, we call the series Joy Invincible. You might be like, well, I want some encouragement. I'd rather be talking about joy. But sometimes we need to be warned. 
I mean, the Bible tells us, Paul addressing the Ephesian elders before he left them, he said, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Now, sometimes people are like offended when pastors warn them or challenge them. I don't think we function this way in normal life. Like, uh, if you give your teenager the, the car keys, when they first start driving, you probably tell them you better not have your phone out while you're driving, right? We'd think you're a bad parent if you didn't do that. You better watch out who you hang out with because your friends will determine your future, Right? Mama says, uh, come home on time because nothing good happens after midnight, right? Give those kind of warnings. I mean, think about your friends, kids. I mean, like if, if you, uh, ladies, you got a, a, a girlfriend who's interested in uh, some guy and you know he's a player and he's bad news and you don't warn her, she's probably going to be mad at you. Or guys, you got a friend who's interested in a girl and she's like a crazy drama queen, uh, you're probably not going to be happy. If, if your friends don't warn you, sometimes we need to be warned. And biblically, we need to be warned that there's ditches we can fall into. We need to be warned that heaven and hell are real. We need to be warned to be sure of our salvation. Now, let me just say, what, this is what I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about like being a bunch of theological nerds being nitpicky about secondary, non-essential kind of issues, uh, debating other Christians about things that don't matter. I'm not talking about being like some people. This drives me crazy. When uh, they, I mean, there's lots of false teachers out there. But there's also men out there who have served the Lord faithfully for years and years and years. And, you know, with the Internet, everything is like gets time-stamped. It gets permanent. Somebody can say one thing wrong. And people try to invalidate their whole ministry. Or people, and this is just sin, will take things out of context or pick little clips and end up slandering people. And that, that is wrong. It's stupid. It's a waste of time. Don't treat people that way. Don't be one of those people. We should give each other the benefit of the doubt. Now, if something's clearly heresy, we call it out. And, and, and two, I think if you're, not, if you're new to true life, you should know that this is my theory. That I, I think you chew up the meat, spit out the bones. I mean, you know, just because I quote somebody doesn't mean that I agree with everything they've ever said or done in their lives. But, you know, let's be adults. Uh, you know, you don't have to agree with everything that somebody says to profit from them. And to me, to think that, uh, you know, you're the height of theological acumen and knowledge and the judge of all teaching where you can correct everybody else like you've never thought or said something wrong and you have perfect understanding of scripture is just the height of arrogance so that's not what I'm talking about okay so rant over we'll return to the sermon um, this is what I'm talking about though when, when things are a matter of salvation when things are primary doctrine when we're, when we're talking about Jesus and, and we're talking about you know salvation and heaven and hell we better be right on those things. And, you know, we have the clarity of Scripture. 
We have our confession of faith. We have thousands of, a couple of thousands of years now of church history to guide us when it comes to these things. And, and, and when it comes to these things, doctrine matters. Let me give you an example. I um, shared some stuff uh, about Reformation martyrs last week. Uh, that, that I got from uh, a David Platt sermon. I heard him talk about it. It originally comes from, uh, I think it's Together for the Gospel article. And, you know, what he was talking about, you know, this was actually a few decades after the Reformation began with Martin Luther. This was in England. But Queen Mary, uh, as, you know, the, the leader of the church there, Starting in 1555, had 288 people burned at the stake over a four-year period for their Protestant faith. Now, that's not talking. That's not including people who were martyred by other means. That's two, just 288 people who were burned at the stake. You know what the primary issue was that these people were burned at the stake for? It's because they didn't believe in the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. Now, we don't have time to do this, but I think it would be really interesting if we did a quiz this morning. How many of you could name, explain what the doctrine of transubstantiation is? The doctrine of transubstantiation is that, see, the people who knew, they wanted to show off their theological knowledge, right? They're raising their hands. Um, so the, the, the doctrine of transubstantiation is the idea that in, you know, in communion, it literally becomes the body and blood of Christ. And that, uh, you know, that the Jesus, the, 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 the crucifixion, the sacrifice of Jesus is recreated over and over again. And, and so then the, there's, there's grace that's given through that. Now, you know, we believe it's, it's, it's symbolic. And you say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, it's just a theological debate. We're just, you know, they're Catholic brothers and sisters in the faith, and we're just different. And, you know, I think we ought to stop and pause for just a second. You know, uh, you know people who think Catholicism and Christianity is the same thing, why did the Protestant reformers get killed for disagreeing with them? It's not the same thing. It's completely different. The reason these people gave their lives for this is they saw that it's a gospel issue. The Bible is very clear. The whole book of Hebrews is about that Jesus was our once for all sufficient sacrifice on the cross. And that the way that we are made right with God is through trusting in what he has done for us. And that's how we receive the grace of God. Listen, he didn't need any help. His, he doesn't convey grace through the sacraments, be it penance or confession uh, or uh, the Lord's Supper, Mass, uh, the, you know, the others. Or he doesn't need purgatory to help us wash our sins away. And so what's at stake is it salvation in Christ alone or is salvation in the sacraments of the church in addition to Jesus? In our eternal soul, this is just one example, but rest on what we're actually trusting in. Because the Bible is very clear. If you're trusting in something other than Jesus in addition to Jesus, you're not actually saved. 
And maybe you're not Catholic, but that could be your baptism, your church membership, uh, your good deeds. Uh, you're just, you're, hey, I'm a pretty good person. Whatever it may be, it's salvation in Christ alone. The first martyr of, the, uh, of this time that I'm talking about, his name was John Rogers, and that's precisely why he died. There's a, there was another martyr, I, I don't remember his name, but it's, he, was, he was actually beheaded. But as they were about to behead him, there were three friars there, and one came and whispered in his ear and, and said, uh, I, I know you don't want to publicly renounce your faith, but just whisper it uh, to me and I will absolve you of your sins. And, and, and this man loudly said, I have confessed my sins to God, and Jesus Christ, the one true priest, has already absolved me of my sins, so executioner, get these men away from me and do your job. And he was immediately beheaded. That's what's at stake. How are we forgiven of our sins? How are we made right with God? And so what we've seen in Philippians chapter 3 is that the true doctrine of salvation is that genuine salvation is being declared righteous by God through trusting Jesus alone, which is justification, growing in Christ-likeness as the evidence of genuine salvation, which is sanctification, and being perfected in heaven as the end result of genuine salvation, which is glorification. So we're declared righteous, We're growing spiritually as the evidence of it, and someday we're going to be perfected in heaven, which is the end result of all of it. That's the genuine. And the reality is, just like uh, the guy in my church in Maryland who worked at the Treasury uh, Department building and said, you know, the way that they were taught to detect counterfeits was by knowing the real thing exactly, same is true theologically. When we know the real thing, then we can detect what departs from it. So that's the real thing. That's the road that we need to be on. But we need to stay out of these ditches. So first ditch, very simply, stay out of the ditch of legalism. Stay out of the ditch of legalism. Now, when we first started True Life, a lot of the reason that we started True Life in an area where there's so many churches is because so many of the churches were so full of legalism. I think there's still a lot to that in East Tennessee today. But I think also when you look at the church as a whole in the United States today, there's a whole lot of antinomianism. So we're, we're kind of fighting on both ends to stay uh, the true course. But this is what Paul has to say about legalism in this text. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. This is verse 1 if you're following along. Verse 2, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Jesus Christ, and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, let's focus on verse 2 for a minute. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Now, you may say, well, this isn't very nice. Doesn't sound very nice, does it? Again, it's not always kind to be nice when people's eternal souls are at stake. Now, if we really understand what's going on here, it probably um, is not as harsh as it seems. Paul was a brilliant man, 
And really what he was doing is he was taking these false teachers that are commonly called Judaizers. It's really uh, what, what the, the book of Galatians is about. People who taught Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus keeping uh, the, the, the law. And apparently there was some degree of this going on at, at, at Philippi as, as well. But he, he was taking their own phrases and using them against them. In Greek, actually, each one of these phrases begins with the with the the letter kappa, so it's alliterated like a sermon from a traditional Baptist preacher. And but he, he's taking their see they called the Gentiles dogs, and said because they believed they were outside the covenant blessings of God. And Paul's saying, no, if you're not in Christ, you're actually outside the covenant blessings of God. He says, beware of evil workers. Again, they called uh, the, the, the Gentiles evil workers because they thought they didn't follow the law. And, and, and Paul says, in your attention to the works of the law, in your confidence and reliance on that, instead of Christ alone, that actually makes you an evil worker. When he says, beware of the mutilation, really what he's doing here, it's again, it's a play on words. It's, it's a graphic word picture of what he's saying you're doing to yourself spiritually when you're trusting in circumcision for your salvation. That's the warning. He says, beware of legalism. This is how I put it to these Judaizers in Galatians. Galatians 5, 1 through 3 says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. In other words, if you think that your salvation comes through your circumcision, Jesus cannot help you because you're relying on the law. And the only way to be saved through the law is by perfectly keeping the law, and you're already failed when it comes to that, so you have no hope spiritually in the law. Remember, the the ultimate purpose of the law is not to save us, but to show us that we're sinners in need of a Savior. So, he said, I don't know about all this, this legalism and, you know, antinomianism, these big theological terms. Well, here's, here's a practical way to look at it. Some of you will know, some of you remember that uh, Taylor Swift and Kanye West had this big public falling out back in 2016. You remember that? Did you, did you hear about that? And um, in, a, in a Washington Post article, uh, basically she shared how much it bothered her and how for a time after that she hid from the public eye and, and even why she did that. And, and, and here's what she said. She said, quote, when people decided that I was wicked and evil and conniving and not a good person, that was the one I couldn't really bounce back from because my whole life was centered around it, meaning being a good person. She even describes getting into the music business for the very same reason. She said, we're people who got into this line of work because we wanted people to like us, because we were intrinsically insecure, because we liked the sound of people clapping, because it made us forget how much we feel like we're not good enough. And legalism is any spiritual effort to try to be good enough 
apart from or in addition to Christ. There's secular version of it. There's spiritual version of it. But here's some ways that legalism manifests itself. One, it's legalism when we try to earn salvation through attempting to keep the law, religious practices, doing good deeds, anything like that. Listen, Galatians 2.16 says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified Uh, By faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified, shall be declared righteous. Then verse 21 says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. In other words, if we can earn our own salvation, there's no point to the cross. So, if you've ever heard the question... If you were standing before God and he asked you why I should let you into my heaven, what would you say? I mean, how would you answer that? And what I'm here to tell you, if the answer to that includes anything other than Jesus, if the answer to that is anything other than, God, I'm a sinner worthy of hell, and I'm trusting in your grace and your mercy. I'm trusting in the, in the finished work of Christ on the cross. You're not saved. You're in the ditch of legalism. A second manifestation is it's legalism when our faith is in Jesus plus anything else. Romans 3.28 says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Again, that's the problem with Catholicism, for example. It's Jesus plus. That was the whole essence of the Reformation. Nobody's saying Catholics don't believe in Jesus, but the question is, is salvation in Jesus alone, or is it in Jesus plus the sacraments, Jesus plus the church, and so on and so forth? For us, again, are you trusting in Jesus plus your deeds, your effort, your baptism, your church membership, your goodness, whatever else? A third manifestation of legalism is it's legalism when we believe that we're justified by faith in Jesus, but go back to the old covenant or or rely on man-made rules for our spiritual growth. Hebrews 8.13, he says, and that he says in New Covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Listen, a lot of people, it's like Jesus, but then they go back and like they, they try to pull things from the Old Testament, these Old Testament blessings and, and that kind of thing. But here's the problem. In the Old Covenant, there was blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Are we obedient or are we disobedient? We're disobedient. So we're under the curse. Except that Jesus, Galatians chapter 3 became a curse for us, so in Christ, there's salvation. Well, I go back to this old covenant stuff to try to find salvation or sanctification there. That would be like me uh, typing my sermon notes, going and trying to find a typewriter. I'm old enough. 
Or then, uh, I mean, it was a great day when I was like in, in seminary, when I could move from a typewriter to a word processor, but the only problem was on a word processor, it only store about 10 pages of documents. So when I had to do like a 15-page paper, you had to print out the first 10 pages before you could type the next five pages. And to go from uh, my Mac uh, to that, that's what it's like spiritually. There's no point to it. Four, it's legalism. We make our personal convictions in regard to gray areas binding on others. Romans 14.1, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. Uh, this could be like you could have a conviction that God doesn't want you to eat donuts. That's fine. But you start telling everybody else that it's a sin if you eat donuts, that's legalism. And you will be very unpopular as well. <laughs> I mean, you can feel like that the Lord, for your spiritual growth, wants you to get up at 6 o'clock and have your quiet time. That's awesome. But if you start telling people that if they have their quiet time at 6 p.m., they're not a faithful Christian, that's legalism. It's fine if you want to wear a suit and a tie to church. But when you start telling people that you can't really worship God unless you're wearing a suit and a tie, that's legalism. Uh, I mean, it's, it's fine if you think that, uh, you know, we ought to sing hymns and Southern gospel music in church, but if you say it's sinful not to, that's legalism. You're adding to Scripture, or you could say the same thing about modern worship music. Uh, when we start going beyond Scripture, and we take gray areas, secondary matters, or even our own personal preferences, and, and make them binding on others, we become a legalist. We're missing the gospel. Five, it's legalism when we elevate human traditions and man-made rules to the level uh, of Scripture. Uh, Aaron, I'm going to skip ahead to verse 8 just for time's sake. Jesus, in speaking to the Pharisees, said, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments uh, of, of men. It's kind of like some churches think you can't have church if you don't sing the doxology. There's nothing wrong with singing the doxology. It's a good thing. We sang it this morning. But if you think you can't have church, you can't worship without singing the doxology or reciting the Lord's Prayer or whatever else, you become a legalist because you've turned tradition into Scripture. And then the last one is that, and, and I'm not saying there's not more. The last one I'm going to mention is legalism. When we strive for outward conformity to the law, without inward heart change, and without loving God and others, which is the ultimate point of the law. This is what Jesus uh, excoriated the, the Pharisees about so much. Just what he was so uh, seemingly harsh with them about. He said, Matthew 23, 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. And, and this is what legalistic religion does, is it's all outward, but there's no heart change. So it leads to hypocrisy. It leads to frustration. It leads to people playing a game of trying to look religious and trying to look all holy to the people around them when they're struggling on the inside. It's why in legalistic church traditions or spiritual traditions, it's why there's lots of abuse, both spiritual abuse, sexual abuse, pastoral abuse, and those kind of things because there's not the reality of the gospel there. 
So what's the key to staying out of this ditch? Well, it's found in verse 3. He says, we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Jesus Christ, and have no confidence in the flesh. It's through trusting in Christ alone. It's through realizing that it's only the gospel that saves, the gospel sanctifies. It's what Jesus has done for me. It's not adding to it. It's resting in him, relying on him, allowing him to change me. From the inside out. It's all of your confidence in Christ. Do you have confidence in the flesh? Do you think you can save yourself? Do you think you can contribute to your salvation? Or are you rejoicing, boasting in Jesus and what he did for you on the cross? Number two, and it's really only a two-point sermon. Stay out of the ditch of antinomianism. In other words... Don't get into the ditch of legalism. Don't get into the ditch of antinomianism. Stay on the road of genuine salvation. So here's what he says. Let's move ahead to verse 17 in Philippians chapter 3. Actually, in verse 16, he says, Let us walk by the same rule. And then he says in verse 17, Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk as you have for us a pattern. For many walk, and it's talking about how they live, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Again, this is talking about false believers, professing believers, who really aren't in Christ. And... You know, with, with the legalist, they may look like they're in, in, in grace, but they're not really trusting in grace. But the antinomians are kind of doing the same thing because they may trumpet grace, but they're not trusting in grace to save their lives. Paul described them as the enemies of the cross who are headed for destruction, so they have to be false believers. But he said they're self-absorbed, living for their own desires, glorying in things that they should be ashamed of, and focused on the things of the world instead of the things of God. When I think of these two ditches, I think of the parable of the prodigal son. The Pharisees, that's who Jesus was speaking to, they were, that's the older brother. You know, we think of the younger brother as the prodigal, the one who was far away from God, and he was, and he's kind of a picture of an antinomian, but actually, uh, the older brother is a picture of a legalist, and he was just as far away from God spiritually, it just looked like. He was in the Father's house. You can fall in the ditch on either side of the road. The issue is grace. Again, Paul, in in addressing uh, the church in Galatia, says, he says, For you, brethren, have been uh, been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Timothy George, in his commentary on Galatians, has written of this. And if you ever want to intensely study the book of Galatians or teach it, you need this commentary. He says, here for the first time in Galatians, we have a positive indication that the freedom for which Christ has set his people free can be horribly perverted and misused. Freedom can become a pretext or opportunity. The Greek word means a springboard or a base of operations for throwing off all moral restraints and indulging in the lust of the flesh. 
when this has happened, freedom has been corrupted and liberty turned into license. The result is a fearful delusion, a bewitching every bit as spiritually paralyzing as a lapse into legalism. And that's what we're talking about. I mean, antinomianism, it could be called license or lawlessness or licentiousness. Phil Johnson says in totally non-technical terms, it's simply the view that Christians are not bound by any of the precepts of Moses' law, moral, civil, ceremonial, or otherwise. That's doctrinal uh, antinomianism. Maybe if you look at this graphic, it kind of looks like just kind of, you know, just pushing away the law, saying, I'm in Christ, but I'm going to do what I want to do. And so it's probably important that we understand the function of the law in our lives. Number one, the law is like a mirror that shows us our need for a Savior. It's kind of like you've been outside working all day. You come in, you look in the mirror, you're sweaty, you're dirty. It doesn't make you clean, but it shows you you need a shower. And in that analogy, the shower is Jesus and the mirror is the law. And you can't really preach the gospel without preaching the law, but you can't be saved through the law. The law is like a guardrail that restrains and protects against evil. Right? That's part of the reason why God has instituted his moral law in the world to protect people for human flourishing, for our good. And again, the law can't save people. The law can't change people's hearts. But the law does limit behavior sometimes. You say, how do I know this is true? It's because if, if you're leaving church today and you're going 65 and a 45 and you see a police officer up ahead, you're going to slow down. That's this function of the law. But then the law is also like a GPS that guides believers in how to live their life. Phil Johnson writes of this again. He says, in other words, the third use of the law makes the law's moral standards the rule by which the faithful must order their conduct. In this sense, the moral strictures of the law remain binding on Christians, even though we are not under the law in the Pauline sense, in effect, not dependent on our own obedience for any part of our justification. In other words, we're, we're saved, we're set free not to sin, but from sin. Part of salvation is we're empowered to obey, not saved by our obedience. We're saved by the obedience of Christ, but our, our good works and our obedience become evidence of our salvation. Like Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We love to quote those, but then the next verse says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in. James said, Faith without works is dead. Listen to what Paul wrote in Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. He says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. That sounds great, but this is look at what he goes on to say. He says, Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. That's what genuine salvation looks like. He says, Stay out of the ditch on both sides of the road. You say, well, so what does this antinomianism look like practically? 
Well, I want to give you maybe the most um, extreme example that I've ever become aware of. So there, there's a Christian investigative journalist named Julie Royce who, who shared this article uh, on her website uh, back sometime earlier this year. And uh, I'm not going to give a lot of details because I don't want you going to try to track it down. But the, the, the heading of it is, In San Diego, Porn Star Preaches Message for Sinners by Sinners. And, and it says, this lady, I'm not going to say her name, is a porn star making a living from an industry widely considered evil and predatory. She's also a pastor of certain church, a new church plant in downtown San Diego. Her and her husband, uh, who's the like co-pastor, I guess, launched the church plant this summer, advertising it as a church for sinners by sinners. The church website further explains that the church leaders are, quote, the biggest sinners, and this is the most non-judgmental church around. Uh, one of the church's Instagram posts read, quote, where else will you find an adult actress who is also a pastor? If that's not antinomianism, I don't know what is. But basically, it's the idea that, well, it's what Paul said in Romans 6. He says, you know, at the end of Romans 5, he says, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And he says, you know, what then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The antinomian would say, yes. The Holy Spirit says, God forbid. So, I mean, what would be some more maybe normal ways that you may have encountered other than that extreme example of how this works? You ever heard somebody preach, well, you can accept Jesus as your Savior now and decide later if you want Him to be your Lord. That's antinomianism. You ever heard this? I mean, I'm sure you have. It's actually in the Bible. We actually sang it this morning. God will love you whatever. God's going to love you no matter what you do. Nothing can ever separate you from the love of God. It's obviously true because it's biblical. It's just not the whole story on the issue. I mean, yes, God loves us, period. But if we're in Christ and have a, a new heart and a new nature and we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we're not going to want to keep doing everything that we've been doing. We're different. You ever heard somebody preach or present the gospel as basically accept Jesus and he's going to meet fill-in-the-blank felt need. He'll help your marriage. He'll give you peace. And it kind of almost turns Jesus into a self-help guru or a life coach. Accept Jesus and he'll do whatever. Instead of the gospel, the response to the gospel being broken over our sin before a holy God and bowing our knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. John MacArthur's put it this way. He says, in fact, John Calvin, the great reformer and believer in faith alone, stood on the teaching of James too when he wrote, It is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. In other words, salvation is not a result of good works, Ephesians 2, 9, but salvation does necessarily result in good works. This is the very purpose of our salvation, Ephesians 2.10 that I quoted before. 
Those who deny that good works are the necessary fruit of the justification received through faith alone make out the Lord Jesus Christ to be a half a savior, one who saves from sin's penalty but not its power. Yet Scripture teaches that we are united with Christ not only in His death, but also in His resurrection, the necessary result of which is a holy life. All true Christians have been set free from sin's bondage and have become slaves to God, resulting in sanctification. Therefore, while it is faith alone that saves, the faith that saves is never alone, but will always be accompanied by the fruit of righteousness wrought by the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, and I think that's a message that is desperately needed to be heard by the church in America today. Our churches are populated with false converts, either who are trusting, well, either who are in one of these ditches, legalism or antinomianism. At one time, a group of reporters was trying to discredit Billy Graham's ministry. And I don't remember all the details of what I read, but basically they picked out you know, someone who had made a profession of faith uh, at uh, one of his uh, crusades. And, uh, but then, you know, I guess had gone public with it, but then you know, we're just, was just living this you know, kind of riotous, debauched kind of uh, life. And um, they're like, you know, look at your convert. And he's like, well, he must be my convert because he's not the Lord's. And that's what Paul's saying here. That's what Paul's saying here. And so, stay out of the ditch of legalism. Stay out of the ditch of antinomianism, but then make sure you're on the road of genuine salvation by trusting Jesus alone as both Savior and Lord. Make sure... You're on the road of genuine salvation because you're trusting Jesus alone as Savior and Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so again, 2 Corinthians 13:5. Test yourselves as to whether or not you're in the faith. Are you trusting in Christ alone? And, and, and not just, you know, you prayed a prayer, you raised your hand, you walked an aisle so you could go to heaven. Are you trusting in Christ alone? Have you surrendered to him? Is he the Lord of your life? And is it him alone? Or are you adding to it? Are you in the ditch of legalism? Or are you, you know, have you made a profession of faith, but your life's never been changed, and there's no fruit, and you've just been doing your own thing? Could you be in the ditch of antinomianism? Test yourself. Do you know Christ? Make sure. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes if we could. Father, I pray, God.